we let people drive the cars. And you can imagine that just re-inspired the people who were there in the first place. So suddenly everybody got the chance to drive the cars. So their passion rubbed off on the customer's passion. And it was a passion build, which was the front end of the business. The back end, we transformed everything. Kevin Gaskell is an entrepreneur, business owner, leadership speaker, and adventurer. In the boardroom, he has been responsible for revitalizing Porsche when it was on the cusp of collapse in the early 90s. And outside of the business world, Kevin set the world record for the fastest road across the Atlantic Ocean, has been to both North Poles twice, and has climbed many of the world's highest peaks. In this conversation, we cover the parallels of mentality needed in the middle of the Atlantic and to revitalize a global icon, why most of your limits exist solely in your head, what the hell cultural bounce has to do with the building the perfect team, how to ensure your adventures actually happen despite having a busy life, and the foundations of success in mindset. I loved it this conversation with Kevin. His enthusiasm is infectious and his passion for an adventurous life is basically intoxicating. And a quick heads up, my audio quality on this is terrible. I won't bore you with all the technological issues, but suffice to say, I had to make do with my AirPods. Sorry, you'll get used to it. I'll be back up to my standard high quality voice soon. And I've got a ton more podcasts just like this lined up for you so make sure you're subscribed and without further ado here's the wonderful kevin gaskell tell the story about when you are in invited to an exit interview yeah. when you're was it 32 yeah. years old um because i think that's a, a fascinating <clears throat> conversation okay sorry i put my right put my correct glasses on i can see better there we go now i can see you okay so, so my first experience of leadership, of, of company leadership, came at Porsche. And, and it kind of came by default. Um, the business had got itself into acute difficulties. Um, it was really in trouble. Uh, to give you an idea, uh, we'd lost 90, 90% of our sales. Um, we had three years unsold new car inventory. We were hiding cars everywhere. Um, out of 32 brands in the marketplace, we were number 32 in terms of customer satisfaction. And we were losing 20% on everything we sold. So <clears throat> we were just about to drive off the road effectively. Um, and it's family-owned business, or was at that time. And the Porsche and Pieck families who own the company um, made some very substantial changes and, and they made some changes in Germany and then they came to the UK and they effectively cleared out the board and I wasn't on the board but I was an operations manager I was effectively running the operations by that point uh, I was 32 years old, I was still very green um, and I was invited to meet the family and so I I thought, blimey, this is going to be an interesting conversation and I'm sure um, it's only going to end with me going the same way as the rest of the board have gone today, and that's down the road. So I went to meet them, and I, and I, and, and I thought, you know what? If, if, I'm gonna, if you're going to shoot me, I'm going to tell you what I really think about the business. And so they started to give me a bit of a hard time, and, and I said, well, hang on a minute, guys. You know, I don't run this company. You do. You, you are the supervisory board, and I've been watching it go wrong now for 12 or 18 months, and I'm surprised nothing's been done about it. And actually, you could do something about this. All right, what would you do? 
And I said, well, and I'd walked in with my financial colleague. Neither of us were on the board, but we were the operation manager and the finance manager. And I said, well, we've been looking at this and here's what we would do. And so we shared with them the plan that we had for the business. And I expected to be in there for a 10 minute exit interview. And actually we were in there for four hours and we were explaining to them what we would do and how we would do it and the changes we would make and how we felt the company has fantastic brand Porsche, you know, one of the world's leading brands um, has an extraordinary future, but you have to make some change now. And after we'd spent four hours telling them what we thought, they asked us to leave the room. We went outside and I said to Armin, who was my colleague, I said, well, at least we tell them. He said, no, 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 they were listening. And there was a lot of German chatter in the room. And at that point, I didn't speak hardly any German, uh, whereas he was a German national. So he understood what was being said quietly as we were presenting. Um, and 15 minutes later, they invited us back into the room. And I kind of walked in expecting to be asked, do you want a blindfold or not? Um, and they said, right, we've made our decision. Um, you are the new managing director. You are the new financial director. That is the plan. Make it happen. And honestly, you could have knocked me over with a feather. Um, it was the last thing I expected. And so I left that room and thought, right, we're going to fix this company. I had no idea really where to start. And I was, as I said a moment ago, absolutely as green as grass. Um, suddenly overawed with the enormity of running this business, but you've got to get on with it. And so we took our plan and we pulled the leadership team together. We make a lot of changes to the business. We rolled that plan out. And um, uh, four years later, we were number one in customer satisfaction. We were the most profitable car business in the country. We had a one-year forward order bank um, rather than a three-year unsold inventory. Um, and we were voted one of the best companies to work for. And it was all done with the same people. It was all the same people. All we did was change the way we led the business. All we did was have a clear plan. All we did was communicate, engage, and inspire the people to make a difference. And, and you know, that, that was my introduction to leading companies. So what could you see that the hierarchy, for want of a better word, couldn't see? A lack of strategy, lack of clarity on what they wanted to be. You know, at that point, there'd been all kinds of conversations around different types of cars and this and that and the other, which, of course, now have come to pass. You know, Porsche have now got sports cars and SUVs and, and, and. But at that time, there's just a lot of conversation about it and nobody was making decisions. And so we started to make decisions. And we went back to the engineers and the manufacturing plant and said, here's what we need. This is what we need. And this is the price point, And this is what the consumer is looking for. And let's build a product strategy. So the first thing was clarity on what we sell to whom. And, you know, at the time it was, it was kind of um, funny in some ways. The newspaper were having a go at us. Everyone was having a go at us saying, Porsche is dead. It's the yuppie mobile. And it never was. Uh, the kind of people who bought our cars were people who enjoyed the engineering. They typically had their own businesses. Average age was in the 50s, not in the 20s, as the press were portraying us. People in their 20s typically don't buy Porsche. You don't spend 60, 80,000 pounds on a car in your 20s. And um, we started to understand our customers far better and realized that they weren't just buying transportation. 
You can get, you know, you want transport by golf. It's a great car. Go buy golf. They were buying an experience. And so we transformed the experience. We, we made it a special experience again to come and buy a Porsche car and enjoy all the services, all the support. Uh, and and the, the whole um, Porsche club and companionship and everything that was around it, we made people feel special. And, you know, it worked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It did. I was doing some prep for this interview and just messaging a very good friend who is a Porsche fanatic. Um, and I said that you were coming on the show and like you're MD from this year to this year. And he's like, he just littered me with things that I didn't understand about changes. And he was saying it's so exciting. And he like, he was just saying like how much of a, a change was happening at that time and how it was kind of revolutionary to Porsche. Um, but he's also a, an aficionado. Mm-hmm. He is bought in. He's part of the Porsche club. He's like, he's a kind of the personality is so close to Porsche and is so closely affiliated. So there's obviously some part of that that is melded into him. And it's like, he really resonates with that. So what is it that people are resonating with? What is it that people, like, how did you create that change? Well, I use a phrase, which is um, price is not a number. It's an experience. You will pay. People will pay if they can afford and they choose to do so. will pay for a five-star hotel. We'll pay for first-class airfare. We'll pay for, we'll pay for. They choose to do that. And as I said a moment ago, if you want transportation, buy a Golf. Fantastic car, great car, buy a Golf. But if you want something really special and an experience, then we wanted them to come and choose to buy a Porsche. And we started doing it. We started to realize we'd, we'd become remote from our customers. And the way we changed that was, uh, at the time, the British Motor Show was an enormous event. You would get 750,000 people turn up to the NEC over a week and and look at cars. And we realized that we couldn't give people a special experience in that situation. And I actually changed the show stand. It used to be very remote, and, and it was called Fortress Porsche. You know, you don't get on unless you rattle your keys and show us your checkbook was the old theory you didn't get on i changed that i took all the barriers away and i said everybody and anybody can come on and see the cars sit in the cars we wanted people to aspire to these cars and so we changed that but we realized that the porsche owners or the potential porsche owners wouldn't get a special experience in that scenario so what we did was try to recognize who they were by speaking to them we had a lot of our team there talking to the customers and understanding who they were and what they wanted. And then we would give them an invitation card. And we just give them an invitation. We said, look, we're having an open day at the factory in four weeks' time. We'd like you to come along. Please come along. And we can give you some special experience. So we organized this <clears throat> this open day, and I asked the staff whether they would come and work the weekend with me. And I said, look, I can't afford to pay you, but I'll give you some Porsche clothing, and you are so proud. We are all so proud of what we do. I'd like you to help me to show customers and prospective customers around our business. And that's everything from the sales and marketing to the mechanical to the leather shop. People always love to go in the trim shop and see what we do. And my, all my staff said, yeah, we'll do it. Pretty much everyone said, yeah, we'll do it. And I had no idea whether any customers would turn up. 
So the morning of the open day, uh, I drove down to work. It was a Saturday morning. I drove down to the office um, and I saw these cars parked up along the lane, which led to our to our business. I was driving past them thinking, who on earth are they? What, Saturday morning, why are they here? I want to go to the front of this line, and it was probably a line of about five or 600 yards long. I realized they were queuing up to come in, and they were all the people, all the customers, potential customers we'd invited, yeah. and they'd all turned up. And we were overrun. And I have to say, the first um, first few times we ran this experience, it was a bit um, loose. You know, we, we, we were completely overrun with the number of customers. We didn't expect that many. But over time, we got much smarter and inviting people in, giving them a great experience, and showing them what we're all about. And it was about meeting the team and understanding that we're as passionate about this product as they were. One of the other things that I had to do, of course, was get the team to be inspired again. And part of it was one of the first questions I asked. And I'd been in that business for five years. When I, when I took over, I'd been there for five years. So I knew everybody. But I asked the question, I got everybody together when I was announced as the new MD. And I said, how many people in this room there's a lot of people. How many people in this room have actually driven a Porsche? And about 5% of the people put their hand up. And I said, right, we'll fix that. I've got plenty of cars. We'll fix that. So we took um, some days at a proving ground called Millbrook, and we shipped cars up there. We took the staff up there in, uh, in, in different phases and gave them the opportunity in very safe environments. This is not a race circuit. This, this, this is a, a proving ground that's got urban simulation and country road simulation, all kinds of things. And we had driver coaches there as well. But we let people drive the cars. And you can imagine that just re-inspired the people who were there in the first place. So suddenly everybody got the chance to drive the cars. So their passion rubbed off on the customer's passion. And it was a passion build, which was the front end of the business. The back end, we transformed everything. We just – we took – 13 divisions and compressed them into five. Uh, we made the business far more effective, far more efficient. And it was just a massive turnaround. Um, as I say, five years later, we'd been number one in the market twice for customer satisfaction. Um, we, we'd gone back to becoming the most profitable car business in the country. And the staff were loving it and the customers were loving it. And, and that's when it was time for me to move on. And that's when I, I was fortunate to be invited to go and run BMW. And so I, I stepped out and moved on with my career. I'm going to come back to that mm -hmm. at some point, but I want to kind of set it up and set up the kind of, um, I think the personality and the character you show. So take me back to, was it Macclesfield that you grew up in? I was born in Macclesfield, but I was only there till I was three. Um, <clears throat> grew up in North Wales, really. My dad's job okay. was in North Wales. So what was your dad's job? And like, what was the kind of, what did you learn from your parents? So my dad was uh, an engineer at the local power station. He's a mechanical engineer and he was called a shift charge engineer. So he ran all the operational, all the operational side of the, of the power station. It was a coal fired power station. Um, and it was on the edge of the Connors key and, um, and it was great. And so my dad, what I learned from my mum and dad, well, I learned the principles of honesty, trust, truthfulness, um, do what you say you'll do. Um, and my dad, I realized that my dad in particular was very popular with the team, the teams that he led. 
Um, and when I was 16, 17, 18, I got a job uh, during some holidays from school. I got a job as a laborer at the power station. So I was there and working, and I got to meet people. And once they realized that who I was, who my dad was, you know, I expected to get a bit of, well, he's the boss, and, I, and they'll treat me differently, as in treat me negatively. But they didn't. They just said, your dad's a great guy. He's straight because mm -hmm. the day is long, and we really enjoy working with him. And I realized at that point that being honest and truthful and, and being very straightforward about business and, and building teams was was really important. Um, so I learned that from my dad. I played cricket with my dad. We played in the same cricket team. I loved cricket. Um, so, yeah, my mom was the village hairdresser. Um, and what that meant was <clears throat> I could never do anything wrong because somebody would see me and they'd all go into the hairdresser. <laughs> and my mum would know within five minutes, oh, we saw your Kev going a bit fast down the lane today. You know, I, it felt like the whole village was watching me. Um, and it always got back to my mum. <laughs> my mum found out straight away. So, yeah, it was um, very straightforward upbringing, two sisters. Um, and, you know, I had a very happy childhood. I went to the local comprehensive school, which was more than a bit rough, um, but I was determined to work hard and mm -hmm. and build, I didn't know what at that point, but build something for myself. I wanted to be an engineer. I wanted to be a structural engineer. Always did, and, and that's what I went out and, and studied. I studied structural engineering at university, and I loved it, absolutely loved it. Who was your role model for your work ethic? And the reason I'm saying that is you've, um, to paraphrase you, you said something like, what you lack in skills or intelligence, you make up for with a surplus of hard work or yeah. something like that. Um, so like, where did, where was that role model? Um, it was really watching other people and realizing that, that achieving results is, is kind of, 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. Who said that? One of the, um, was it Edison? Somebody said, you know, that's that's what it's about. I think it was Edison, And it's yeah. it, it, actually building a business is hard work. You know, it, it, it's always hard work. And particularly when a business is in difficulty, it takes long hours. And I get frustrated with people who seem to think that, Oh, you've been very lucky, Kev, you know, success. No, no, hang on, guys. Hang on. I said, and, and I've said, and it's actually in my book, my first book I wrote at the end, if anybody wants to know the um, the secret of success, call me in my office at 10 o'clock on a Friday night, and I'll tell you, and nobody's ever called me. You can call me. I'll be in my office at 10 o'clock on a Friday night. And I'm, it's not bragging. I, my wife thinks I'm a workaholic. I'm not really a workaholic. I just love what I do. I'm inspired by building teams and building businesses. And so mm. I do it. And I do try very hard to cut myself off at 10 o'clock. Um, but I, last night I was in this office till it's about 20 past 10. I thought, oh, we better get out of here. But I was back in here again at 10 past 7 this morning working on a new project. So hard work, if you can achieve success with that hard work, then you're very lucky. Most people I know, most entrepreneurs I know, most business leaders I know, they work very hard and very long hours. And that's the reality of life. Mm, absolutely. What kind of what kind of cricket player were you? Again, and I'm, I mean, not from like where you're a bowler or well, basketball, but I, I mean, like, what were you like uh, to train with? Because you reached, was it an in, international? Yeah, okay. 
Yeah, I played. So you reach an international standard of cricket, right? Yeah, I played cricket for Wales. I went to school in Wales. So we we born in Cheshire, moved across to North Wales where my dad was working. And then I played local cricket, village cricket, and then representative cricket. And first you, you play for Flintshire. Then if you're lucky, you get paid, um, picked for North Wales. And then there was a there was a selection match between North Wales and South Wales. Um, and something happened. And, and what happened was the people who had been playing in the North Wales team some of them didn't get picked for that match, that selection match. And, and, I, and I thought, what, what's going on? I couldn't understand what was going on because I'd been pretty successful. And I asked the questions and, and I was told in no uncertain terms that basically I was going to the wrong school. And so the selectors were all from the public schools. And so suddenly the teams were stuffed with the public school boys. And I thought, well, blow that. So I turned up and, um, and they said, what are you doing here? I said, well, I've been playing for this team for the last three seasons. Um, and I don't understand why I'm not here. So I've turned up for the trial. And they said, well, we didn't invite you. I said, no, I know you didn't invite me, but let me have a – it's a trial match. You know, this is, a, this is kind of an exhibition match. You can, you can swap players in and out. You don't have to have 11 a side. You can have 15 a side and swap people in and out. And so they let me bowl. And I, I still remember. How old were you at this point? 17 or 18, 17. Before university, okay, and um, and they let me bowl. They let me bowl. They said, right, you can bowl four overs, and I bowled four overs, two maidens, two for four, two wickets for four runs, and I thought, well, I can't do much better than that. Um, and fortunately, they they decided, they agreed, and so I got selected for the for the national team, which was great fun. You know, I was very excited about it, and we played, and and it was great, but. The coach for North Wales was a guy called Barry Wood. And Barry Wood was the Lancashire opening batsman. I think he was Lancashire captain at the time. May not have been captain. He was certainly Derbyshire captain. He moved to Derbyshire. He was Derbyshire captain. A guy called Barry Wood. Um, and he invited me across to Lancashire. And so at the age of 17 or 18, I <laughs> drove across one evening. My dad drove me across. And... Um, went to Old Trafford and suddenly got dropped in the nets with all the people I'd seen on TV. It was the most extraordinary experience. Yeah. And I suddenly realized just how good these guys are. And I was a quick bowler. Um, Barry Wood had coached me to bowl. Jeff Thompson had a sling action, an Australian bowler called Jeff Thompson, very distinctive action. And I was bowling like that. And I was bowling very quick. I was a big lad, you know, I'm six foot three. And I was bowling very quick. I had somebody once score six head buys off me, hit him on the head and went for six. So I was very quick. <laughs> uh, but then you go into you go into the nets with, you know, true professionals and you realize just how good they are. Um, and I realized I will go to university and and I will play at university. And if I if I if I can think I can make the grade, then I'll become a professional cricketer. And Barry Wood bless him, he followed me around university and he, he went to to Derbyshire. And he called me at home one day and said, Kev, come to Derbyshire, come to Derbyshire. And I didn't go. I didn't go. I didn't think I was good enough. I'd seen these guys and just how good they were, and I didn't think I was good enough. And so I decided, no, I'll play cricket for fun. I love playing. I was playing six days a week, some some weeks, you know, but I will continue with my career. And, and I'm pleased I did. I really am pleased I did because, you know, subsequently I've seen and met um, a number of 
international cricketers. I got quite friendly with Ian Botham at one point. And you just realise how good these guys are. You know, they are exceptional. And I wasn't at that level. And I, I knew I wasn't at that level, so don't pretend you are. Do something else, Kev, and enjoy the game. The reason I asked how old you were at that point is because it takes a certain amount of courage and bravery um, and confidence to to turn up to that kind of selection and go, no, there's all these, well, on one hand, real adults and people who in this like competence hierarchy are way higher than me and power Mm -hmm. hierarchy are way higher than me. So like to go up to that and say, no, I believe I should be here despite well, let's call it what it is—the the bullshit of like public school versus um, private school or versus uh, versus comprehensive, rough ass um, comprehensive, school, which I went to. Yeah, the, yeah, comprehensive. There, there we go. Yeah, there you go, comprehensive. Um, to have that kind of go. No, I'm going to stay here, and I'm going to I'm going to put the effort in, and I'm going to show up. Yeah, for I was myself. just cheesed off when, when I was told what had happened. I, I just thought this is not fair. This is just not fair, and. And, and so, you know, I made a point and I had to drive there. I'd just been, I started driving. And so I was over 17, going on 18. And I drove to this match, which was in mid Wales. I just turned up and, and, you know, what are they going to say? No, you can't. No, you can't play. Go away. Well, they might have said that, but they didn't. They let me play. They let me, they let me bowl four overs. I don't think I batted, but they let me bowl four overs. Um, and as I say, four overs, two maidens, two for four. Not bad, four overs. Yeah, it doesn't get better than that. So, um, talk to me about your journey into mountaineering. Well, I grew up in North Wales, as I've said a couple of times. Um, The school uh, had access to the mountains, so there was a a cottage that was owned by the local authority, and then every four or six weeks, our school had a little mountaineering club. And we would go up and spend the weekend. We'd go up on a Friday and stay till Sunday night. And it was with a couple of three teachers, and there'd be six or seven or eight of us kids. And this would be about from 15, 16 onwards. And we would go and we would climb or we would walk. Um, Some weekends it was climbing with ropes, rock climbing. And other weekends it was mountaineering. We'd walk through, through Snowdonia. And I just loved it. You know, it's just it, it's it's my happy place, and um, and I loved it. And then as time went on, you know, you grow up and you <clears throat> you go through your career, and you, you need a break. And 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 now I use these expeditions as my opportunity to de-stress because I'll go away. Uh, the last one we did was the was the Atlantic Row, which was um, you know, which was a six or seven week event, and you go away for six or seven weeks, and you're focused on on the expedition. So I, I, I've climbed big mountains. I've done that. And then um, I'm now discovering other other adventures. Um, and as I look to my right, there's my Pacific boat sitting 20 yards away from me. And um, we're going to row that one across the Pacific in, uh, in 2025. Um, and that'll be a big experience as well. So, yeah, that's what I do. That's what I do for fun. Yeah, it's um, it's amazing. I've got exactly the same kind of relationship with the mountains as as much as that's where I re-energize. That's yeah. where I recharge. And to think that spending four weeks freezing, not eating enough, 
sleeping on a very uncomfortable bed um, in relative danger compared to real life is a way of um, recharging and re-energizing is, um, I think, a strange concept to a lot of people. Yeah, but, you know, I, I agree with you. A lot of people think I'm nuts or you're nuts, but the joy of waking up. Do you know what? I've just bought a new tent, and I'm so excited about this new tent. It weighs two kilograms, and I'm mm-hmm. so excited about it. It'll turn up shortly, and I can't wait to get up somewhere, somewhere remote. And the joy of waking up in the morning, yeah. and it's got it's got a little awning on it. Uh, it's two man tent, a little awning, and I'll go on my own. But the joy of waking up and getting out in that awning, especially if it's piddling with rain, and just cooking my breakfast with with mm-hmm. the view of the mountains, that you said it, recharge. It's just wonderful. And nobody bothers me there because I typically don't have a phone signal. And so I can just get away and get a break. Today I run seven seven businesses. I'm involved in seven businesses. And there's never a spare moment. So to go away and have the luxury of just sitting and watching the world of the mountains while I eat my breakfast, I just love it. It's just it's just the most wonderful thing. So yeah. You know, some of us some of us are introverts. A stillness. Yeah, exactly. To it. And some of us are introverts. You know, I don't need people. I'm very happy on my own. I'm very comfortable in my own company. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I genuinely enjoy going to remote and wild places and just enjoying the remote and wild places. I'm with you. So to completely ignore the audience for one question and think only about myself, what brand of, of tent? Do you know what? I actually, as I said it, I actually can't remember because it's a, it's a new brand I'd not heard of. And I bought it on a platform called Sport Pursuit, um, which I love. You get fantastic bargains. Yeah. Um, and it's an American brand. I can't remember what it's called. But I, I did a lot of research on it. But I still can't remember what it's called. I'll send it to you afterwards. Yeah. Nice. No, two kilograms. Lovely stuff. Lovely stuff. I look forward to that. Um, so, yeah, yeah, that's insane. With bones. It really With is bones. insane. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's impressive. I could talk about tents all day, um, but let's talk about some expeditions and, and mountaineering. Actually, before we get to the, we, um, I saw a link between, and if this is something you want to take out afterwards or you don't want to talk about, that's completely fine. I saw a link um, and a, a conversation around the same paragraph, but. Entering into mountaineering and losing your sister. Do you mind sharing a bit more about that? And as I said, if you want to take it out, take it out. No, it's fine. So my sister um, sadly died of leukemia when she was uh, in her early 40s. Um, and the, you know, it's tragic. Um, and anybody who's lost a sibling, who they were very close to. I was very close to Jane. Um, you know, it's 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 very painful. And and I asked her, and she'd been ill for some time. Um, she'd been ill for a number of years. And when she died, I asked the doctors, would anything have made a difference? You know, what is there anything we could do that would have helped? And they said, you know, we 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 need a monoclonal antibody unit. And this was the North Wales uh, Cancer Centre. Um, which is just outside Abergelly. And they said, look, we need a monoclonal antibody unit. And I said, fantastic, what's that? 
and they explained to me what it was, and it's a it's basically a award where they apply um, specific treatments, chemo chemotherapy treatments. And I said, why haven't you got one? Well, we haven't got the money. How much would it cost? Well, it'd be a lot of money. How much is a lot of money? And it was somewhere between three hundred and five hundred thousand pounds. And I thought, okay, how do we do that? How can I raise that much money? So I went away quietly. And I was thinking about it, and I was with a mate of mine. A mate of mine is a guy called Pete Goss, Pete Goss MBE, and he's a single-handed round-the-world sailor, very special guy, Pete Goss, amazing guy. And I was wondering how to raise this money. And Pete had built the world's biggest catamaran, and then he'd lost it, and and. He said, um, he, we're talking about adventures. And he said, well, I'm thinking of sailing to the North Pole. I said, well, how are you going to do that? It's frozen. He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, I'm thinking of building a land yacht and sailing across the ice. He said, but I want to walk there first to suss out the, the territory to understand what the, what the land, what the ice is actually like. Uh, and he said, I'm looking for some people to come with me who are a bit nuts. And you're a bit nuts. Do you want to come? And I said, yes, yes, immediately, yes. And so we decided we were going to walk to the North Pole. And I thought, right, this is it. This is my opportunity to get sponsorship and start to raise money to build this cancer treatment center. And so we duly walked to the North Pole, and we raised a chunk of money. Well, then if you're going to walk to the North, you might as well walk to the South. Um, And when I walked to the North Pole, my son was only 15. And I said, you know, you're you're too young, Matt. You know, you, you're just, sorry, mate, you're just too young. And we'd done all kinds of stuff already together. We'd climbed mountains and stuff together. And I said, no, you're too young. So I went with a group of guys and one lady, and we walked to the North Pole, and we raised a lot of money for charity, and we, we held that money because the hospital said, don't don't give it to us, hold it, and, and you know, let's, let's use that as a seed for this monoclonal antibody unit. Well, if you walk to North Pole, you might as well walk to South Pole, mightn't you? And so I was talking over dinner, and I'd spoken to Alan Chambers, who'd been our guide for the North Pole, and he said, why don't we do the South Pole? And so I was talking over dinner with my family one night, and I said, um, thinking of doing the South Pole, my son looked up and said, well, you're not going without me this time. So, okay, Matt, fair enough. So he was 17 or 18 when we went, and so we walked to the South Pole, and we raised another chunk of money. And then he said, I've never been to the North Pole. I said, well, we better go back then, hadn't we? So we went back to the North Pole again. So I went to North Pole twice. And then we raised enough money and we built, um, we gave it to the hospital and they, they built this monoclonal antibody unit, which is there now. Um, and and you know, it's, a, it's a space where treatment is delivered. But what I particularly like is we gave them some photographs and it's called the Area Ward, which, which means snow in Welsh. Um, and we gave them some photographs from the expedition, amazing photographs of the of the scenery and and us in the scenery. And they they put those um, photographs into light boxes. So if you're lying on the bed having uh, your treatment, you know some people maybe lying there for some considerable time, and they can look up at these lit backlit light boxes with these these wonderful images of the beauty of the Arctic and Antarctica. And so, um, yeah, that's that's how we raise the money. Um, so it's there treating uh, thousands of people each year now, which is which is great. 
Just a quick favor to ask, my friends, if you could head to wherever you listen to this podcast and leave a very kind review, that will not only help my ego virtually explode, but it will help people just like you find the podcast too and hopefully help them to their next level. Beautiful. Really Mm. lovely. When you think back to, actually, what's it like taking your son into somewhat well i say somewhat into hostile terrain you mean what's it like him taking me into hostile territory because he's he's younger and well he's younger and stronger than me or being being with each other and that um well it's interesting you see because when we went to the south pole that was his first grown-up expedition and for the first short while he calls me kev my kids call me kev my daughter and my son call me kev for whatever reason um and so for the, for, for the first few days, some of the other people didn't realize that we were actually related. So we keep very, we, you know, these are pretty full-on expeditions. And I can't look after a, another person, just like I wouldn't expect anybody to look after me. And so he said to me, Kev, when we go there, we go as two men. So don't you worry about me, we go as two men, and that's fine. Um, of course I do worry about him. Um, of course I do, but he also worries about me. Um, uh, he's an amazing guy. You know, he's super bright. He's super fit. He's got a wonderful, calm demeanor. I'm the one who goes off with a, like a bottle of pop. I'm the one who has the big idea, but he's the guy who logically follows it through. So we're actually a very good team in that respect. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are moments when I think, oh, heck. Um, and, you know, I tell the story about being at the North Pole near the North Pole, and the North Pole is just frozen ice. A lot of people don't realize you're actually on an ocean standing on a couple of three meters of frozen water, um, and it has a habit. There's a water underneath it, and you're standing up, you know, on a 5,000 feet of, of water, whatever whatever the depth is up there. Uh, no, not 5,000 feet, 5,000 meters of water. Um, the water underneath is moving, and so the ice will break up, and it will move, and sometimes – a crack forms and, and the pieces of ice separate. And I always tell you know the story about we make sure we're on the same piece of ice when it separates because, uh, you know, I, I, coming home after being to North Pole is fine. But if my wife said to me, where's Matt? And I said, well, I last saw him on a piece of ice moving towards yeah. Moscow. You know, she wouldn't be too impressed. So we do look after each other in that regard. I think the most challenging moment was the first night of the Atlantic row when we got caught in a big storm, which we didn't expect. We thought we had a weather router and they told us the storm would not come towards us. Well, sadly, nobody had told the storm not to come towards us. And so we got caught in this storm, pitch black, mountainous seas. Um, you know, it's winter in the Atlantic. It's not the most friendly place to be. And we got hammered and we got hit by one wave that snapped two of our oars. So we broke our oars. Um, and these are oars with shafts as thick as my arm, but they snapped. And the boat was, I mean, tossed around like a cork is, you know, it's a statement people throw away. We were tossed around like a cork. And we're rowing two hours on, two hours off. So we go down into our little cabin, lock ourselves in. It's sealed. We get in this tiny cabin and lock ourselves in, like getting in the boot of a car. And in there you can you know, get a bit of sleep and, and make some food and, and something. And my son was out rowing 
in this mountainous seas. And that was the only time that I can remember thinking, we might not get out of this. We might not. This is, this is so serious. This is now very scary. It's very scary. You've got no lights. We turn the lights off because otherwise we're blinded by our own navigation lights. So in the pitch black, you can't see the waves coming. And we're just getting drowned by big seas. And, and so, yeah, I do at that point. But what can I do? You know, it's, it's kind of every man for himself in that scenario. We're in a tiny plastic rowing boat in the ocean. And we're 100, 120 miles from shore by that, by that point. And nobody's going to come get you. So you need to sort it out. And, and um, you know, you stay calm and get through it. So, yeah, of course I do watch out for him, but he watches out for me too. Mm. Yeah. It's part of that. Have you heard of the phrase type two fun? No. no. Okay, so type one fun is, I don't know, you're at um, a Pink Floyd concert and you're thinking, this is brilliant. I'm loving it. I'm having the best time of my life. This is fun in the moment. And type two fun is when you are, um, you're bushwhacking for six hours in the pissing <laughs> rain and you are hating every moment of it. And then you get out of it and you go, and then you're in your tent and you're laughing with your friends going that was ridiculous that was fun do you look back on that crossing and that particular moment when you're getting thrown around like a cork and think that was tight yeah too absolutely and you know there, there were some other days so so um I, i've written a book called catching giants which is about the atlantic row and it's about the lessons how how did we go from being novice rowers we'd never rowed to two years later breaking the world record for the crossing mm-hmm. And what did we learn from it? But also, what did we take to it? So we approached it, I approached it, with a business-like perspective. We're going to run this like a business project. We're going to have clear clear um, vision of success. We're going to have the areas we need to focus on. We're going to work on team building and then that. So that's how we became world champions. But the, I, asked, I, I invited each of the crew to effectively write a chapter in the book. And the bits they remember are the type two bits. They remember the really scary moments of the big storm. They also remember we had one um, session of 24 hours where the sea was quite calm, but the wind was strongly against us. And we knew it was a race. And we knew that our competitors would throw out the parrot anchor, which is effectively a parachute you drop in the water in it. And then you can take a break because you're not going to get blown back by the wind. The, The anchor is holding you. And we said, no, we're not going to do that because they will still drift back with the water current, and it might be one or two knots. They'll go backwards for 24 hours. We're going to row through this. And so for 24 hours, we rowed like our life depended on it. It was like rowing through treacle, and we did maybe half a knot. But nobody complained. There were five people in that boat. There wasn't one word of complaint. And afterwards, each one of the, the, the team said, you know what? That was just an inspiration to be part of a team that did that. And and when they wrote their chapter in the book, they referred to that and said, you know, that was great fun. It was hard as hell. It was really as hard as hell. You're just rowing into the wind all day and all night. But we kept going and we kept going and we kept going. That's how we ended up you know, setting the record. It's all in your head. You believe you can do yeah, I've got um, one of my favorite. You believe do it yeah you can do it if you believe yeah. you can't do it you won't do it and and i believe i 
One of my favourite memories of Ski Mountain. So, so, no, I, I firmly believe that impossible is just an opinion. It's somebody's opinion. Oh, that's impossible. Is it? Mm, I'm not clear it is. So I'm going to go and do it. And when I said we're going to set the world record for the row, and, and it wasn't me who said it. it. was I had four guys, four other guys in the boat, and they were half my age. They are half my age. And they said, we want to break the world record. And I said, guys, do you know how tough that is? And they said, we don't care. We want to break the world record. Okay, we'll break the world record then. And, and we said to people, you know, our ambition is to break the world record. I said, oh, that's impossible. Well, it might be, but it might not be. And it proved it wasn't. We broke the world record. Yeah. So I know someone who similarly rode across the Atlantic, wasn't going for the world record, um, but he got, a, I think it was like a week in or four days in, and one of his team members gave up and refused to row from that point on, um, which is incredible, which talks about teams. And also, like, I'm planning an expedition to possibly Pakistan, but definitely Kyrgyzstan um, this winter or next spring. And I'm thinking about mm -hmm. teams, like, who mm -hmm. do you want with me? And or who do I want with myself? And how do I um, build that out and ensure they're the right person? How do you stress test team building yeah. to select the right people for, I'm guessing there's transferability between revitalizing a company and for rowing across the Atlantic? I think, there are, <clears throat> I think there are two stages to it. The first is something that's called cultural bounce. And, and it's a phrase that uh, the uh, HR director in one of the companies used and, and said to me, I said, well, we've got some people who don't last for it. She said, no, it's cultural bounce. They, they come in, they don't suit the culture, and they're gone again quite quickly. And this is a business where we've grown um, 100x 100x in five years it's a phenomenal business um but it means that you've got to be on it you know we are growing at such a rate we haven't got passengers you, you know if, you, if you're in this boat mate you're rowing don't don't think otherwise and some people come in and realize i don't want to do that and they're gone quite quickly and then you've got the second which is trying to assess people when they've been with you for some time and I went through a situation recently where I had somebody who was eminently qualified for the uh, for the this was an expedition, eminently qualified for the expedition. They've done all kinds of of stuff, but they realised that getting into a boat and being a thousand miles from shore with no chance of rescue was going to scare them silly. And whilst they could do the uh, the physical piece they knew they weren't going to be able to stick the mental piece of being completely remote, completely isolated, totally without support. Um, and, and they said, you know what, this is not for me. And we could see it. And <clears throat> one or two of the crew members wanted to try and keep them in. And I said, oh, there's no point. There's really no point. Because if we get out there and we hit another storm, this person is going to find this distressing. And we will spend time caring for them. Mm -hmm. And not caring for the boat and, and you know maintaining everybody's safety. So you do have to make some tough decisions. And and it's a slow burn. Um, you know, the Pacific, we've had uh, a couple of people drop out when they've realized how big a how big a challenge this is. And so we're currently um, bringing one guy into the team. We haven't met him yet. We spoke well, that's not true. I met him socially, but I haven't met him in a 
in a, in a expedition environment. I know what he's done. He's got a good CV, but it's got to be about fit. And you need to see people when it's mm-hmm. when the stress levels are high, when the pressure's on, because you will mm-hmm. soon see whether they whether they knuckle down and and you know do their bit or whether they hide. And there's no space for people to hide. You just can't carry people. Um, so yeah, it's some of it's gut instinct, um, but you need some time. And and you know once we cast off, we go from California. And once we cast off out of California and start heading west, you can't drop people off. There's nowhere to go. You're stuck with them. <laughs> and we have two guys in the boat already who have been on, on another row crossing where some of the other rowers said, enough, I'm not doing this. And I can't think of anything more demoralizing. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a challenge. And it's the same in business. Right. You know, we, we're very careful about who we're recruiting to our businesses. And, and I'm now quite quite quick. If somebody's not fitting or I don't think somebody's making it, I will take them out quite quickly. And that's not a that's not a chest-beating exercise. It's usually a very quiet conversation where I help them to move on to something that suits them better. They're not a bad person. It doesn't mean they're bad people. It just means this is not the right opportunity. Mm-hmm. So how can I help you, I would say in the conversation, how can I help you to find – a situation that suits you better than this one. And and I've fired people who, who are still my really good friends yeah. because, you know, firing is, is sounds a negative. It's not about firing. It's about helping them to move to something that suits them better than where they are. That's how I look at it. Yeah. There's this study that shows that if you have, let's say, a high-performing team and you put a low performer in there, what you'd expect to do is the – the average of the low performer would start to creep up towards the high performer because they'd start to adopt their values and their work ethic and their skill set and everything else that goes along with that. What actually happens is the top performers come down towards the average and um, and that's pretty enlightening to how you put together a team, yeah, right? Exactly that. Exactly that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So there's a ton I could, uh, could go into here. I'm well aware that we're running well, we up can on time. You can run. There's quick. something that I was... Another 10 minutes beyond, it's fine. The call's at okay. quarter two, so we can run another 10 minutes. Okay, fantastic. <clears throat> okay, fantastic. When did you decide to... So you went to Porsche, and then you went to BMW, and then I read somewhere you got bored. Yeah. Can you talk to me about that? Yeah, I, I got to the age of 40, and I... You know, Porsche had been a wonderful experience, and a BMW, I did... I took pretty much the model I developed a Porsche and took it to BMW and we took the business. I inherited a business. It was doing okay. It was doing okay. It was BMW. It was doing all right. And they asked me to grow the business against this plan. And this plan was a kind of 4% per annum growth. I thought, yeah, but the market's changing. We need to do things very differently. And I had quite a lot of resistance in the early months there. Uh, Some of the senior team actually resigned. They didn't believe that they needed to do anything different. Um, but I believe they did. So we changed the, the, the thinking. We, we changed the mentality. We changed the culture. And over the next four years, instead of growing at 4% per annum, we grew the business by 80%, 80%. And we grew operating profit by 500%. And people couldn't believe it. And I just thought we were doing, we were doing the basics. We were just doing them really well. Um, and some 
smart thinking and so it was it was a journey and and i always think building a business is a journey but by then i was 40 um and i thought i bmw asked me to go and run america go and run japan go and do this that and the other and i didn't want to i just didn't want to do that take my family and drag them around the world was not not in my game plan and i'd always wanted my own business and the 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 internet was starting to become a big thing and the motor industry really didn't get it and i thought well I'll go and do it then. I'll go and do it. And so I found some backers and stepped out of BMW um, and started a dot-com, which became very successful. Um, and over the next five, six years, we built a business called Epics. Um, and, it, and it's really now it's the standard in the motor industry. Every dealership I go into uses this platform. Um, and it was utilizing the internet to make the the automotive industry far smarter and, and and more effective and efficient than it had been and so i enjoyed doing that um and and that rolled into another technology business and another technology businesses and i think i've built 15 now um and you know there's nothing special about it being technology um technology is just one product it's it's all about clarity of strategy um, inspiring teams building great team spirit being efficient and effective, understanding the customer and providing a great service. And if you can do that, it doesn't matter what your business is. It's completely transferable. Those That philosophy is completely transferable. And so I mentioned it a moment ago, my, my latest fast-growing business is, um, is a fiber network business called ITS Technology. And we've grown that business 100x over um, five years. Um, and, and it's great. You know, we've gone from nowhere to becoming number three in the UK market. Well, that's not a bad place to be behind OpenReach and um, Virgin Media O2. That's not a bad place to be from nowhere. So we're having a lot of fun building that company. Uh, and it's a great team. It's a great CEO. I'm the chairman. There's a great CEO there. There's a great team there. And uh, they're doing great things. So that's what I enjoy doing. I enjoy the challenge. And and when I get bored, I'm, I'm now brave enough mm to step out and to say, you know what, guys, not for me anymore. Let's find a successor, find somebody to replace me, and I'll go and find the next challenge. And I've got my next challenges lined up now. I know what I want to do for the next 10 years. Um, I've just got to find the space to do them. <laughs> yeah, that finding space, creating space is the hard thing, even if you're thinking about, okay, I'm running one business or how many businesses, and I want to ensure that I make the time to go on a six-week expedition somewhere or row across the Atlantic. How do you ensure that kind of stuff happens? The, the you adventure? just have to say you're going to do it and do it because every time I've ever said, I, I warn the companies well in advance. You know, I'll give them two or three years notice to say, listen, on that date, I'm going to disappear for two months. And, and you, you can tell everybody nods, but it goes in one ear and out the other. They take no notice of it until it gets closer. And each time I've gone – my shareholders or my investors or somebody will say, oh, Kev, could you, oh, it's not a good time. It's not a good time. You know, we're, we're going to sell the company in, in only six months. I, could, could you just cancel it? And I said, no, no, I go. And it's never made any difference to the business at all, which says I am completely useless. I am completely replaceable. But it's not, in, in reality, we set the business up so that the team can continue to run it. And I, you know, you try to make sure you only miss two board meetings and come on, nobody is irreplaceable. So I just go and get on with it. And you know what? 
if they don't want me back, they don't want me back. That's that's fine. But I haven't had that yet. So that's how I do it. I decide I'm going, and we build the project, and then we go. Because there's every reason in the world not to go. People always tell you why not to go. But we go. And then it's fun. Yeah. How do you deal with the family side of that equation? The, okay, I'm going to go away for two months and leave my wife or kids? Or- um, well, it's only my wife. Because my kids, I've got one kid in the boat with me. Uh, and the other one is uh, yeah. a grown yeah. mother with a couple of children. So she's got her own life. And my wife's grown up with it. I've been doing it since I was a teenager. And, you know, it's who I am. It's what I do. I think when we did the Atlantic Row, she was the bravest person of all because she stood on the dockside in Spain and watched her only husband and her only son row out into the ocean. And it was it was unknown. It was unknown. It is scary out there. The middle of the Atlantic is not a friendly place to be. Uh, whatever anybody tells you, it's pretty scary. You've got 100 million square miles of water and you've got big storms coming through. And it's a scary place to be. And, um, you know, she she, she had to kind of watch us go. And then she'd follow it. Because we, we, we're in contact with sat, sat phone, with satellite phone. And there's a, um, a GPS tracker on the boat. So you can watch where we are and what progress we're making. And, you know, it's just part of the journey. And, of course, she gets to go to Antigua and wait for us. <laughs> she said, don't rush. I'll sit here and drink pina coladas. Don't rush. <laughs> and uh, wait for us to turn up. Yeah, whereas you had the audacity to set the world yeah, exactly. record. Well, it was quite funny. Be there super quick. <laughs> um, we, it was really touch and go whether we were going to, how long it was going to take us. You know, you, you're dependent upon wind and currents. Uh, but in our last third, we went faster than we expected to. And so the families of all the crew suddenly had to scramble and get to Antigua a day or two sooner than they'd expected to. And they only just arrived. We, we pulled in at three o'clock in the morning and they'd only got off um, the airplane uh, the, the previous evening. So it was, it was very touch and go that they were there. Would have been a very lonely experience pulling into an empty, <laughs> empty, empty dockyard at, at three o'clock in the morning. But fortunately the families were there. Beautiful man. Um, thank you so much for your time. Where can people find out about your books and where can people find out about your uh, your speaking yeah, as well? So my website is kevingaskell.com and you'll find most things there. Uh, my books are available, as I say, uh, on Amazon and at good bookstores, although my first book, Inspired Leadership, has now sold out because I'm rewriting it. It's five years old now and, you know, the world moves on. So I'm in the process of rewriting that one. I'll be published again. Uh, spring next year but catching giants um you know it's done very well it was uh, shortlisted for business book of the year which was great and um people enjoy it and i get lovely comments from everywhere i get people the most amazing reaction you know oh, i love you get people who say i learned so much from it because there are 80 business and life lessons in there i get people who say you know i earned, i learned so much from it it was fantastic mm-hmm. i've used it in my business i've used it here there and everywhere you get others who say it was just an adventure because it's a it's an adventure on one side of the page, and you know what do you learn from that on the other side of the page? So it's a mix, mm. and there's a lot of pictures in there as well, pictures of us doing daft things and getting hurt doing them. But people say, you know, I've learned so much from it. I really enjoyed the adventure. Oh my goodness me, 
that storm was horrific. And other people get involved in the passion. I've got people writing to me saying, I was in tears when you when you crossed the finish line. I think that was two years ago, guys. I've stopped crying about it now. But, you know, I'm pleased that it touches people. Because <laughs> it, it was it was a great – I enjoyed writing the book. You know, it's it's, um, it's something I enjoy doing. I go away. I'm very lucky I have a house down in Devon. And I go and sit down there quietly. I go on my own. And I just sit there for a few weeks and I just write the book. Just sit down and write it. And it's just great fun. Amazing. Thank you so You're much for your time. Tom. It's really nice to speak to you and thank you for the invitation.